I am very excited to be able to uh, continue today in our sermon series we've been doing in the New Testament, looking at the book of Galatians. If you're new here, just to sort of get you caught up here, the book of Galatians is a letter written by the Apostle Paul to a group of Christians in this new little church called Galatia, uh, which is now in, in modern day Turkey. Uh, this is written by the Apostle Paul, the great missionary and theologian of the New Testament. He would go around and he would preach the gospel and people would come to faith and he would form them into churches and then he would go on to the next place. But he never forgot about those people that he had led to the Lord, so he would write letters back to them, encouraging them, challenging them, sometimes rebuking them, getting them back on track. And this is what we see here in the book of Galatians. It's a letter that Paul wrote back to this dear group of brothers and sisters because a problem had come up in their church. The problem was this, is that though they had originally understood the gospel of grace, some people had come along and said, hey, this whole Jesus thing is great, but it's not quite enough. You need to believe in Jesus, but you also need to make sure that you're circumcised, yikes, uh, for the Gentiles. You need to make sure that you follow the dietary restrictions, no more pork. You need to make sure you keep the Sabbath, and there was a whole list of things, and they were saying, Jesus isn't quite enough. It's Jesus plus these other things. And so Paul has to write this letter back. He feels compelled to write this letter because this is a serious problem. This is a challenge to the very core message of the gospel. These are not little periphery issues. This is at the core of how people are made right with God. And so Paul writes this letter, and so far we've been looking at, he begins by sort of um, defending his right to write to them uh, as an apostle, defends his authority. He challenges them, do not change the gospel. He describes his interactions with the other apostles, including what we looked at last week, which is where he has this open confrontation with the apostle Peter. Peter was the other really big significant figure in the early church, and yet we see these two come into a, a head-to-head conflict over this issue. That's how important it was. And now in today's passage, Paul is going to move from describing all this thing, and he's really going to get to the heart of it. He is going to lay out his theological argument. And so the passage we're looking at today is a rich, thick, complex theological argument that Paul makes about what has come to be called the doctrine of justification. Now, some of you, when you hear things like deep, rich, thick doctrine, you're like, yes, I love this stuff. I'm glad I came this morning. Other people are like, ugh, I wish it was one of those fun stories or some psalms or poems. You don't really like all this theology stuff because you think, oh, that's just sort of head knowledge. But let me just encourage you, theology matters. Doctrine is really important. This isn't just sort of like fun Bible trivia stuff for the nerds. Okay, this is for all of us because doctrine really affects how we are made right with God and then how we live that relationship out in this world among ourselves. And so this is really important, so I'd really encourage you to pay attention. Even though it's a a little bit complicated and technical, it's really important that we understand this. Now, if you're not familiar with the term justification, you're a little bit confused by it maybe, I've heard it, but I don't know exactly what it means, that's okay. Hopefully today you will walk out of here with a better understanding, because it really is important. 
In fact, before we jump into the text today, I just want to read to you a quick quote from Martin Luther. Some of you know Martin Luther, the great uh, Protestant reformer from 500 years ago. He said this about the doctrine of justification. He says, the doctrine of justification is the truth of the gospel. It is, in fact, the principal article of all Christian doctrine. It is therefore most necessary that we should know this article very well, that we should teach it unto others, and that we should beat it into our heads continually. Amen? That's what I'm here to do this morning, try to beat this into our heads. Right? And then he ends by saying this, if this article of justification is lost, then all true Christian doctrine is lost. Now maybe he's being a bit dramatic here, but I don't think he's far off. This really is foundational. So even if you feel like, yeah, yeah, I know this, or even if you're like, I'm not sure about all this, listen carefully to the word of God. So I'm going to invite you to stand now as we read our passage. Today we're going to be reading from Galatians chapter 2, verses 15 through 21. Uh, The words will be on the screen behind me, or you can read along in your own Bible. Here's the word of the Lord. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of God for the people of God, and all God's people said, praise be to God. Please be seated. Our God in heaven, we do believe that every word of your scripture that you have given to us is your perfect truth. You have given us your word to teach us to correct us, to guide us, to rebuke us, to train us in righteousness. And so today we submit ourselves to your word. God in heaven, would you open our mind to receive this truth? Would you open our heart to receive this truth? And would it change our lives for your sake and for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Last week I was listening to a podcast and it was an interview and it was interviewing a, uh, a guy who grew up in Iran in a Muslim family. But now he considers himself, he identifies as a, quote, secular Muslim. And so he was explaining this to the host and he was saying, you know, the reason why I say that is because here's what I've learned. At the end of the day, all these religions are pretty much exactly the same. He promoted this idea that's quite popular in our world today, which is this. He said, you know, all these different religions, there's different ones, and they're all just different ways of expressing. They're like languages expressing the same sort of inward impulse that we all feel inside of us for something bigger than ourselves. He said, we all have this, and so we all express it in different ways because we all want to connect with 
with God. And so he said, so ultimately it doesn't really matter if you call God Allah or Jesus or Buddha or Vishnu or whatever else. At the end of the day, they all just represent man's way to try to connect with the same ultimate divine energy. Now, you've probably heard something like this before. And here's the thing. You know what? For a lot of that, I completely agree with them. You know, it really is true that deep down inside every human being, there is this longing for connection to something that's bigger than us. We are an innately spiritual people, so all of us have this built-in desire to connect with God, whatever that may be. And I also believe it's true that virtually every religion on earth is essentially the same. They might look different on the surface, but every religion is some sort of of series of activities you need to do to somehow try to connect with God. So every different religion has their own set of of rules you're supposed to follow. They have their own uh, rituals you're supposed to go through, your sacrifices and so forth you are supposed to make. But ultimately, they're all essentially the same. They're just man trying to reach God. So that is basically what every religion on earth is with one very significant exception. And that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's because while every other religion on earth is man trying to work and and hopefully climb his way to reach up to God, the message of the Bible is God reaching down to us as we lay dead and helpless on the ground and rescuing us. That is what makes Christianity different, and that is the heart of justification. This is so clear in Scripture, yet as clear as it is, wow, we just struggle with this, don't we? There is just something in the human heart that feels like, man, that that can't just be right. I've got to do something, right? I've got to at least go through some ritual. I at least got to make sure I, I do these things, and I definitely don't do those things. I've got to do something to make sure that God accepts me. That's just so in us. This is what was happening in the Galatian church 2,000 years ago, and I believe it is still happening today. And here's the thing. Paul had to write to them back then because it's so dangerous, and it's still dangerous today. Because if we allow even a hint of this to creep into our church, to creep into our lives, we are not only keeping people who are far from God forever experiencing the true grace of God, we are hurting ourselves as Christians. We are locking ourselves into a life of, of joyless bondage, of always wondering, have I been good enough? Does God really love me? Am, am I really sure? And that is no way that God wants us to live. That is not how he has intended for us to live. And so it is vitally important that we understand this doctrine in this passage. So we're going to work our way through this today and try to understand as much as we can in a very limited time. Again, there's so much packed in here, we can't really cover all of it well, but I want to just see how Paul rolls out and introduces this doctrine of justification. And what we'll see is how justification is explained, how justification is defended, and how justification is lived. Justification explained, defended, and lived. 
So first, let's look at how justification is explained. How does he just describe this whole concept to us? And this is what we see in verse 15. And he starts off like this in verse 15. He says, we ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. So when he says the we here, he's kind of continuing his dialogue with Peter that we looked at last week. And he's saying, hey, Peter, you and me and Barnabas and all the Jews here in the room, we are Jews by birth, right? They came from this this privileged class of people in their mind that grew up with God's law. And then there's everyone else. Then there's those, those Gentiles. Remember, Gentile is just everyone who's not Jewish. So presumably the vast majority of us here today, we're all Gentiles. And he says, and those Gentile sinners, Now, he wasn't trying to necessarily insult us here. This is just the way that Jews referred to Gentiles. And the reason they were sinners is because they didn't have the law. We were ignorant of the law. We didn't grow up like they did with the Torah, with with understanding the law. Therefore, they are by default sinners. And so Paul is sort of saying, yeah, that there are these two groups and and they look very different. And, And the Jews thought that, well, of course, because of our birth, because of our understanding of the law, we are obviously a little bit better we're a little step ahead of those Gentile sinners. But then he goes on in verse 16 and he says, yet we know. Now when he says yet, you know what he's doing here is he's challenging what was written right before. He's challenging this idea that somehow the Jews think they are better because of their birthright. He says this in verse 16, Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one is justified. Now that verse is quite a mouthful, but this is where Paul is introducing this language of justification. Now, as you look at this verse, there are actually three key words or phrases you need to understand. There's three words that that come out quite a bit here. One is justified, another is works of the law, and another is faith in Jesus. Each of these words is repeated three times, and so they're all extremely important. And so we're going to start by looking at this, this first word here, which is justified, What does this really mean? He says it three times here in this passage. Your translation might say, made right with God or or righteous. So what does this word mean? What is the concept behind this? Well, really the core idea of justified is this, that when a person is justified, they have the status that is needed to be in right standing with someone else. They, they have what is needed to be in a good relationship with some other party. There's nothing standing between them. Now, that concept might be a little bit foreign to us, and we don't really use that language today, but in Paul's day, this was actually used in courtroom settings. This was a legal term. So to be justified was the opposite of being condemned in court. So you were either found to be guilty and condemned or justified. And so when Paul says justified, what he has in mind is that we have been declared not guilty, completely innocent. We've been acquitted of all charges. Everything has been dropped. The court has no reason to bring any penalty against us. 
I have a good friend here in Addis who's a lawyer, and he was telling me about a case of his uh, he dealt with recently, and his client got involved in a horrible car accident, very tragic, where his client was just driving down the road one night, and there was a drunk guy on the side of the road, and he was drunk and kind of out of his mind and got in a fight with someone else, and in the midst of his drunkenness, he falls into the street right in front of this guy's car, and he gets run over, and the guy died. It's horrible. Drive carefully in Addis. It's dangerous around here. <laughs> But the police come and they, they arrest uh, this guy and they take him to jail and he's charged with murder. And he spends a long time sitting in jail, charged with murder. Everyone's looking at him as a murderer as he's sitting there in captivity in jail. Well, finally, after a long process, he gets his opportunity to be in court. And in court, there's a series of witnesses and testimonies and evidence. And at the end of the day, the judge bangs his gavel and he declares that that driver is not guilty. And he walks out free. And I thought about that. I said, so think about that man. He walks into the courtroom that day as a convicted, charged, guilty murderer. And yet he walks out of the court that day, not guilty, completely free and innocent. Paul says that is what happens in our salvation. We come before God as guilty sinners, and yet when we are justified, we are declared innocent. Now Paul likes to use a lot of different images to describe salvation, but this is one of his favorites. And you know, in order to understand this, you have to understand what is implied with this word justification is that in order to be declared justified, you first had to be guilty, right? In all these images of salvation, if you've been made alive, it implies that before that you were dead. If you've been ransomed and set free, it implies that before that you were a slave in bondage. If you've been found, it means you were lost, And so what he's saying, if you have been justified, it implies that prior to this, you were guilty. But now, because of God, he uses this imagery and says, you are now set free. You are now considered not guilty completely in God's eyes. It doesn't mean that you're perfect. It doesn't mean that you actually don't sin anymore. But in the courtroom of heaven, when you have been justified, you are declared right in God's eyes. So that's what justification means. It's what we all want. It's what we all need, right? Paul says there's two different ways that people attempt to try to find this justification. Next one comes in the next word you see repeated three times, which is works of the law. You see here in this passage, works of the law, works of the law, works of the law. He wants to grab our attention. And what he's describing here is that some people think that it is through works of the law that we are made right with God. Now, this term to the audience back then, when they heard that, what they thought of was the Old Testament law. In particular, they probably thought of those outward expressions of the Old Testament law. Again, things like circumcision and and, uh, dietary restrictions and so forth. They had come to believe that this is how a person was made right with God. Now, once you read the Old Testament, you read the law of God, you realize this was actually never the pathway, but this is what people had come to believe. Again, before you look down on the Jews for this, this is exactly what all of us do. This is what every religion on earth is, is somehow us trying to come up with some system that says, okay, do this, don't do this, then God will be good with you. 
But Paul makes it very clear. When you think of works of the law, whether it's the Old Testament Jewish works of the law, or think of any other version of the works of the law that you might be familiar with, any other religious system, cultural system you might have in your world where you think, I have to do X, Y, and Z in order to achieve justification. Listen to what Paul says about this. He says, a person is not justified by works of the law. It is not by works of the law because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. So Paul makes it very, very clear. This pathway, which some of you are on, is a pathway that only leads to hell because it does not lead to justification. So he warns us, don't get on that road. So, We need to be justified. It's not through works of the law. So then how do we find ourselves justified? And that's where this third phrase comes in that's repeated three times. Faith in Christ. Now, in this translation, it says faith in Jesus. Then it says believed in Jesus. But really, it's the same word in the original language of the New Testament. One's just a noun. One's a verb form. But it's the same word. Faith in Jesus. Believed in Jesus. Faith in Christ. He's saying, okay, so you need to be justified. The pathway is not by works of the law. So what is it? It is by faith in Jesus. So what does that mean? Well, what is faith? Faith is having an absolute trust and confidence in something else. It's being 100% certain, absolutely, that this is the truth. And it's not just believing it. It is banking your life on it. See, I I can say, oh, I believe in parachutes. Absolutely. They look great. I bet it would work really good for you. But I don't have faith in a parachute until I strap one on and jump out of a plane. That is demonstrating faith. So Paul says that's what we need, this absolute trust and confidence in something else. But he doesn't just say you need faith by itself because faith on its own actually doesn't do anything for you. Because you can have faith in some really stupid things, right? Some of you might have put some faith in an investment that you thought was great, and it went bust. Maybe you put some faith in some person, and they turn around and hurt you. So just having faith isn't the issue. It is having faith in Christ. It is the object of our faith that really ultimately saves us. So it is not just faith in some generic sense. It is faith in Jesus Christ. It is faith in the person and work of Jesus. It is faith in the fact that Jesus really is the eternal second person of the Trinity, that he is God in the flesh on earth. It is faith in the reality that he lived a perfect life and he died on the cross and he rose again on the third day. It is faith in the fact that if you would come and trust in him, he will give you eternal life. It is faith in Jesus That is what leads to justification. So again, you have these three words, justification, being made right with God, one wrong path to that, which is works of the law, and the right path, which is faith in Jesus. Now, seems simple enough. And for some of you who have been Christians for a long time, maybe you're nodding your head saying, all right, sounds good. Is she? All right, keep going. I got it. And maybe, yeah, on paper you understand this, but I really want you to think about your own heart when it comes to this issue. Because I know what goes on in my own heart. And I've been in ministry for a lot of years, and I see what goes on in the hearts of many people around me. And that is this, that though we might say we believe that there is just maybe this little part of us that thinks, yeah, I believe in Jesus, but I better make sure 
I do this and don't do that. I better make sure nobody sees me doing this thing over here because they might put me on the outside and I, I may might really be on the outside. There is just this part of us that feels like I've got to contribute something to this. We have a tendency to be just like those Judaizers in Galatia. It's just in our hearts to feel like, oh yeah, I've got to do something. It's in our human pride. And so for them, it was like, yeah, faith in Jesus, but you got to make sure, stay away from those pork rinds, Peter. Come on now. Stay away from those bad people over there, those sinners. You better sit at a different table from them. And we might say today, oh yeah, those crazy. I can't believe they thought that. That's horrible. But what is it for us? Maybe you say, oh yeah, you got to believe in Jesus, but you better make sure you're at church. Unless you're sick, that's okay, but you better be there. You better make sure you tithe. You, you better make sure that you, you serve someplace. You, you should try to be in the choir if you can. Extra bonus points with God that way. And Lord knows you better not get caught drinking alcohol. You better not be seen dancing someplace. You better make sure you're not spending too much time with certain types of people. Am I stepping on some toes here a little bit? <laughs> You see, we have the same heart within us that says, oh yeah, faith in Jesus, but then we create these external boundary markers for ourselves and others, and we say, you better live by this or else you're probably not really in good with God. But the point that Paul is making here is that justification is not mostly by faith. And a little bit over here, that's not what he's saying. In fact, he's saying faith in Jesus and works of the law, they're not like, they're not like two paths kind of going in, in parallel directions. You better just make sure you stay a little bit more on this path than that path. No, he's saying these things are actually opposites, going in opposite directions. And to any extent you think that you are walking down this path of, of works of the law, thinking it's getting you close to God, in fact, it's taking you farther and farther away from him. So he challenges that old Jewish way of thinking and he challenges us today and every other rel religious system in the world. He says, you need to be made right with God, but there's only one way for that to happen and it is through faith alone in Jesus Christ. So that is the doctrine of justification. That is justification explained. Now, Paul's a good lawyer type, and so he's kind of laid out this argument. He knows it's going to be controversial, and so what he does, he anticipates the objection that's going to come. He says, now, I know what you're thinking. Maybe some of you are thinking something. Oh, I, I'm not sure this quite sounds right when you lay it out like that. So Paul knows that, so he goes on, and he, he lays out this objection in verse 17. He says, but what? What happens if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we are found to be sinners? Isn't Christ then a servant of sin? He says, maybe what you're thinking, hey man, hold on. If you take off all of these rules, everyone's going to start just running around like crazy people. Everyone's just going to start indulging all of their sinful desires of the flesh. If it's really just, hey, I believe in Jesus, no problem, then what's to stop everyone from just doing whatever the heck they want? Right? Maybe you've thought that before. And Paul says to that idea, certainly not. He, he just gives such a short answer because I think what he's saying is, hey, if you think that's a legit argument, man, you do not understand justification. 
And I'd say that to you too. If your whole beef with this idea is that, wait a minute, that's just going to lead people to be more sinful, you clearly don't understand what God is saying here. You see, now, before you get too upset with me, or Paul, he's not saying that obedience doesn't matter. Of course obedience matters. Of course trying to live rightly before God matters. Of course we want to try to grow in holiness. In fact, as you go on to Galatians chapter 3 and 4 and 5, the next several chapters are all about that. We're going to be seeing it over the next several weeks. It's all about, well, now how do we live out this faith? How can I reflect the fruit of the Spirit in my life? How do I walk in the Spirit so I can please God with my life? All of that matters. So Paul is saying, yes, obedience matters, just not for justification, just not for salvation. You see, this obedience is holy living. This is what theologians call sanctification, and sanctification comes after justification, and you really got to make sure you have that order correct. You see, we are saved by grace, but the natural result of that is, as God changes our life, we will want to honor God, not because we're trying to make sure we're saved, but out of a heart of gratitude for the fact that we are saved. And if you go back in any way, you are just messing it up. That's why, why Paul says this, this statement. He says, if I rebuild what I tore down, I'm just proving myself to be a transgressor. Transgressor is a fancy word for a, a sinner. You see, what he's saying is, I, I tried to follow the law, and it didn't work. I, I, I followed the law, and it did exactly what it's supposed to do, is it showed me that I am a sinner. It showed me that I can't do this on my own. You see, that was really the purpose of the law. Now, we'll get into this more again in, in coming weeks, but uh, quickly, the Bible says the purpose of the law in the Old Testament is ultimately to show us that we can't follow the law. He's, God is setting the, the bar so high that none of us could ever reach it to make a point to us. Hey, you can't be good enough. You need something beyond yourself. That's the point of the law. And so Paul says, hey, I get it. I recognize I can't do it. I need something beyond me. So the law has served its purpose. And so now I, I lay it aside. If I go back to that, I'm just rebuilding. And all that's going to happen is I'm going to keep proving to myself, yeah, yeah, you're a screw-up. I get it. I know, I messed up. So why would you do that? Imagine it like this. Paul used this language of tearing down and building up. So imagine that there is a great chasm. We sang about it earlier. A chasm, a canyon, a ravine between you and God. God's over there and you want to get to God and you think, okay, what I have to do through the works of the law is try to, to build myself a nice bridge across this ravine. So I'm going to do this. I, I can do it. I'm going to work really hard. And so you look around, but you discover all that's available to you are little broken bits and pieces of rotten wood that are infested with termites. And you say, well, I guess I'll try this. And you find some, some rope, but all you've got is this thin, frayed twine that looks pretty weak. But you still say, okay, I, th I think I can do this. And so you begin to build this bridge across this ravine using this broken, rotten wood and this thin twine. And, and you know, this doesn't really look good for me, but dang it, I'm going to go for it. And then in the midst of your building, someone comes along and says, hey, you know what? Someone actually already built a bridge over this ravine right over here. And it's built out of concrete and steel. It is strong and secure. Why don't you just come walk over that bridge instead? And so you say, wow, that sounds great. Sign me up. So you go over here and you start walking down that bridge. But then halfway across, you're like, you know what? I kind of miss my old bridge. I mean, it was ugly, 
it probably won't work, but at least it was mine. At least I built it. I can be a little bit proud of that, right? And so you say, you know what? I'm not going to, I'm going to go back to this other bridge over here, knowing it's going to lead to certain death. That's what Paul says you do if you abandon faith to go back to these worthless works of the law. All it's going to do is lead you to death. And that's crazy, Paul says. So why would you do that? So again, in the face of this objection, Paul uses this idea of justification to let us know, hey, don't confuse it with sanctification. You've got to get these right. Obedience, holy living, it matters, just not for salvation. And if I go back to works, I am trusting in something that is ultimately worthless. So that is justification explained and justification defended. But there's one more critical piece, and that is justification lived. Again, I don't want this to just be seen as some sort of interesting bit of head knowledge. How does this actually show up in our lives? What is the implication of justification for our lives? You see, I really believe that justification really can change the way we experience everything in life. Because this, once we are fully trusting in God and not ourselves, once we have laid aside any of our own efforts, once we are just resting in the glory and the goodness of God, asking him to rescue us, once all the attention goes off of us and on to him, only then can we walk in the freedom and the joy that God really intends for us. And this is what Paul says in verse 19. He says, for through the law I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Again, going back to the law, he says, as long as I try to live by that program, all it's doing is condemning me to death. But when I accept that, yes, I can't do it on my own, and I turn to Jesus, that is when I find life. But right away, just to make sure you don't think, okay, so it's up to me to somehow, i got to die in some way, and i got to find life in some way. He immediately connects this death in life to Jesus. He says, it's not even really your death, it's the death of Jesus. He says, I've been crucified with Christ. And he says, it's not your life, it's Jesus' life. The life I now live, I live by faith in Jesus. It's not even my life, he lives within me. So yeah, so even though I am the one physically walking around this world living my life, my whole life, everything about me is caught up in the person and work of Jesus Christ. My very life isn't my own, it is Jesus. So even the good things I do, it's not me doing it. It's Jesus, it's all him. Everything is pointed to him. And so now, by faith, I go through life and I can walk in freedom and joy because there is no burden on me whatsoever because Jesus' death was my death and Jesus' life is my life. And that's how we live out justification. So, again, what's going on here is he's taking all the attention off of you. And we don't really like that, do we? taking all of the, the effort that I can take any credit for, and he puts it all on Jesus. 
And that's so important because only when we rest in that, only when we are completely confident that God loves me despite myself, then we can begin to experience true transformation. See, as long as your life is tied up and somehow, okay, my relationship with God is dependent on me doing enough good stuff so he's happy with me. It's dependent on me being a good boy or a good girl so that he'll love me. You are setting yourself up for a life of disappointment and doubt and dissatisfaction. Only when you say, God, he loved me and he gave himself up for me. God loved me and I just rest in that, that it is his death and resurrection that are my life. Only when you rest in that are you able to really begin to experience and walk in freedom. You see, I love this quote from uh, Tim Keller. He's one of my favorite pastors back in the U.S. He says this, He says, only when I see myself as completely loved and holy in Christ, only then will I have the power to repent with joy, to conquer my fears, and obey the one who did all of this for me. Amen? Only when I can rest in the confident truth that Jesus loves me and he gave himself up for me. Only when I rest in that love am I actually freed up to now move beyond this bondage and this fear and I better do this. Now I can just walk in freedom. Freedom that ultimately draws us closer to God and changes our life. You know, I think of it like the relationship between a parent and a child. You know, imagine how broken a home would be if a child thought that my parent will only love me if I perform well. Mom or dad, yeah, they love me, but they only love me if I get good grades or if I make the team or if I clean up my room or I do all the right things and all and don't do any of the bad things. If I do all that, then, then daddy will love me. Imagine how messed up that kid's going to be. That's going to lead to all sorts of brokenness and dysfunction in that relationship. And ultimately, over time, because the child isn't going to be perfect, what's going to happen is it's going to lead to more and more separation between that parent and that child. Some of you might have grown up in homes like that know exactly what I'm talking about. But what God intends for the relationship for a parent and a child to be is this, unconditional love. What a difference it makes when that kid knows no matter what, no matter how much I fail, no matter how much I screw up, mom and dad still love me. I am still part of this family. Nothing will ever change that. That brings just this deep confidence and security and joy to that child. And ultimately it allows them to be able to live their life in the way that God intended for them. And they walk with greater freedom and they try harder things because they know they're secure. They know they're confident. And ultimately what it does is it brings them closer and closer to that parent. The same is true for us and God. If you have that relationship where you feel like, oh, God loves me as long as, that's just going to lead to dysfunction and brokenness. But that's not the truth. Because God says he loves you no matter what. You are justified not because of anything you do, but because of what he has done. And so Paul ends with one last dramatic statement in verse 21. He says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. He ends with this because I think it's, it's kind of dramatic. He's trying to shove a dagger into the heart of anyone that thinks, oh yeah, it's, it's at least a little bit up to me. You know what he's saying? He's saying, hey, if it's up to you, if you can think you can do this on your own, 
then that whole life of Jesus was a waste of time. That whole drama of the cross and the crucifixion, what a joke. You didn't need that. You're good on your own. And so he says, unless you want to stand before Jesus someday and look at the scars on his hands and his feet and say, Jesus, you wasted your time. Then you better recognize you do need him. So as we wrap this up, I want to ask everyone two simple questions today. And that's this. First, do you recognize your need to be made right with God? And two, if you do, what are you counting on to be made right with God? Now, if your answer to that first question is, I don't really know. Do I really need to be made right with God? I mean, I'm not that bad. I never killed anyone. I haven't done that bad of stuff. If in any way something in your mind comes, yeah, I need God, but really, then man, you either don't understand the depth of your sinfulness or you don't understand the holiness of God. Probably both. And let me encourage you, repent, humble yourself, and turn to Jesus. Because whether you acknowledge it or recognize it or not, the Bible says you are lost and dead and hopeless in your sin. And the only way you can actually find life is by turning and throwing yourself at his mercy. You can do that today. If you're not sure how to do that, please come talk to us after the service. And maybe you'd say, no, I, I do know. I, I want to be made right with God. I just don't know if I am. I don't know how that happens. Maybe you're, you're new here or you're new to this whole Christianity thing and you're realizing, wait, I've, I have been trusting in some religious ceremony. I've been trusting in a set of rules. I've been trusting in some identity that I have, whatever it is. And you recognize, wow, God makes it pretty clear. The good news is this. You can turn to him today and you can find real security and eternal life in him today if you would just put your faith in him. And again, I imagine there might be some of you here today who could probably explain the just, doctrine of justification with no problem, and you really get it, you really believe it, but deep down, maybe you're still walking in bondage. Because deep down, you hold on to this little bit of shame, this little bit of a sense of, Ugh, I'm really not as good as I should be. Maybe God loves me, but man, I've got this sin that I just struggle with. When God sees me in that sin, surely he says, I'm done with you. Surely he's going to get sick of me. Rest in the doctrine of justification. And if you're one that walks around looking down your judgmental nose at other people saying, well, I can't believe them. They say they're a member at IEC and I saw them dance at a wedding. Boy, was I wrong. Or whatever it might be. Whatever you have in your mind that this clearly knocks you outside of the boundaries, you need to repent of that and humble yourself and recognize that every single one of us are sinners who are only saved by the grace of Jesus Christ. Let me end with this last story. I think really encapsulate the whole thing well. I, I heard this story. I read it in a book many, many years ago. I honestly can't remember the book I read it in, but it's burned into my brain. I've never forgotten it. It was a story of a, a Muslim man who had come to faith in Jesus Christ and he was describing his journey of faith. And he told this story that a big part of this journey, what really what set it off was a dream that he had. And he said, in this dream, there was a seashore and I was out a distance from the beach and I was drowning in the water because I don't know how to swim. And he describes, I was doing everything I knew how to do to try to keep my head above water. I'm gasping and I'm sucking in water and I'm panicking and I'm drowning. And he says, as I brought my head above water at one point, I looked to the shore 
and I saw the prophet Muhammad standing on the shore. And he was shouting out to me, hey, move your arms like this, kick your feet like this, try to do this. He was shouting instructions to me, and I tried to do what he was saying, did everything I could, but no matter how much I tried, I just continued to sink under the water. Then I came up again and I looked ashore, and this time, it was Buddha. And Buddha stood up, and he rose, and he yelled out to me in a very dignified manner, move your arms like this, move your legs like this. And again, I tried to do what they said, and yet each time I, I sunk under the water. And he describes in this dream, I kept going down and coming up, and every time I'd look to the shore, there would be a new and different religious leader, all in different robes and different fancy hats and all these things, and each one of them was doing the same thing, coaching me, telling me what I needed to do to be able to swim to shore. And he said, at the end, I knew I only had enough strength to put my head above the water one more time. I knew I was about to perish. I gasped when I put my head above the water and I looked to shore. And this time I saw Jesus standing there. And Jesus just looked at me and didn't say anything. And I looked at Jesus and I couldn't even speak to him. I just looked to him with my eyes of desperation calling on him. And Jesus jumped into the water and he swam out to me, and he grabbed me, and he drug me to shore. That is the difference between the gospel and every other religion on earth. That is the doctrine of justification that God wants to change each of our lives. Let's pray. Our God in heaven, we thank you for this truth that when we are lost and hopeless and drowning, unable to help ourselves, you jumped in. You came down to this broken world and you have rescued us. God, we praise you for that glorious truth. God, we thank you that it is not up to us because if it were, we would fail every time. Thank you for your incredible, glorious grace, Lord Jesus. God, I pray for anyone here today that this is maybe new information or information they've struggled with and they're, they're wrestling with it. God, would your Holy Spirit convict their hearts, show them that they need you today. God, would you soften them of their religious pride, of their trust in anything else, and would you draw them to yourself? I pray that you would lift their eyes to you and that they could be rescued even now. And God, I pray for any brother or sister here in this room that knows you as their Savior but yet is locked in bondage because even though they're saved, they... They don't feel secure because they feel like they've got to do something to keep you happy with them. God, I pray that this truth of Galatians would set them free to walk in joy and freedom so that ultimately their lives could be truly transformed by your love. And God, I pray for anyone here who walks around with a spirit of judgmental attitude toward those who are struggling. Lord, just as Paul sought to convict those Judaizers in Galatians, Lord, would you convict our hearts I pray that we would not walk with a judgmental attitude, but one that recognizes it is not Jews and those sinners. It is not two groups. We are all the same at the foot of the cross. We are all broken sinners saved by your grace. And I pray that that would set us free. And so God, we thank you and we praise you for your incredible mercy in our lives. And we ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.